Join us today for a discussion with the Theravadan Buddhist nun, Samaniri Jayasara, who's created a gift for the world by providing readings of profound spiritual texts and putting them online. She discusses the ways in which listening to deep texts can be so profoundly transforming. She offers a discussion of transmission, the way in which wisdom can be communicated. And she offers readings from two texts, Christian St. John of the Cross and the Taoist Tuang Su. Join us to hear these readings from some of the world's great wisdom traditions. Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit, life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. I'm Roger Walsh, and our co-host is John Dupuy. And today I am just delighted to introduce a guest who has quite literally changed my life over the last year. A year ago, a friend sent me a link to a wonderful collection of readings from some of the great spiritual texts of the world and of centuries. And I was just delighted to find this spiritual cornucopia. Masters and teachers that I had revered for years, in some case decades, now set to beautiful music and read by someone who clearly resonated with these texts in a very, very deep way, who was expressing, transmitting the wisdom and depth from which they came. And they covered an enormous range. They were texts from basically all the world's traditions, from Christianity, St. John of the Cross, St. Teresa, Julian of Norwich, Thomas Merton, St. Hildegard of Bingen, indigenous readings from the Australian Aborigines, from Black Elk Speaks, Taoist texts, Tuang Tzu, Lao Tzu, Buddhist texts, Islamic texts, readings on death and dying, guided meditations. I've spent the last year listening to and imbibing and receiving the gift of these texts. And the person who has given us this extraordinary gift is an Australian Buddhist nun by the name of Samaniri Jayasara. Jayasara, it is such a delight to welcome you to the podcast and thank you so much for what you've given us. It's my pleasure. You've given us an incredible gift. It's a, I've used the word cornucopia a couple of times, but that's the word which keeps coming to to me, a spiritual cornucopia. Mm. What drew you to record these texts? Well, that's the mysterious question, isn't it, Roger? (laughs) Something did. (laughs) You know, if I trace it back to how it came to be, I was reading an old journal entry that I'd written when I was at Amrawati Buddhist Monastery about 15 years ago, and I'd copied out a section of Padmasambhava's teaching, you know, the the famous text, Self-Liberation Through Seeing with Naked Awareness. And I was reading it and thinking, God, this is amazing. You know, I wrote this out, but the profundity only kind of hit me 15 years later. And it kind of, it just made me think, why didn't it go in as deeply as it's going in now? You know, and I thought, I just, I want to read this whole text. So I read it and then listened to it and thought, wow, 
you know, listening is actually, I know this as a teacher, I suppose, and just, you know, one's own experience of when you listen to something, the Dharma, because I've been listening to the Dharma from different teachers, monks and nuns for, you know, 20, 30 years, and you're always trained to listen to the Dharma in a specific way, i.e. not not necessarily with your intellect or your head. I I had a sense that, you know, I, I know how powerful the Dharma goes in when you listen, so I just recorded that to myself and listened. And because it's such an incredible text, I mean, it's one of the rarest texts. It just went in so powerfully. And, you know, my whole meditation and insights kind of just flowed on from that. And I shared it with another nun in the monastery. And she equally found it even more impactful than reading what's already an incredible text to read. So then I just started reading some other, mainly Buddhist at that time, but maybe I started reading some Ramana Maharshi too, just for myself. So I just made some recordings and, you know, I did have a YouTube, an old YouTube membership. I don't know what made me do it, but I thought, oh, look, I'll just pop one up on YouTube. You know, it was pretty amateurish. There was a lot of music, too much at that time. I just thought maybe someone will benefit as much as we did. And then it kind of snowballed from there. You know, you do get feedback on YouTube. Yeah, there just started to be a level of interest in it. And, you know, I was always joking with the Ayajatindriya, the other nun here, because she'd say things like, oh, you should fix up the music. I said, don't worry, you know, I'm likely to have 10 subscribers. I don't care. I'd be lucky to get 100 subscribers and just thought it was just a bit of a novelty and a, just a way of connecting with some people out there, but not many. And now it's nearly ridiculously 50,000 subscribers. So I have a little bit more sense of awe. But it needs to be a little bit more polished, you know, so just try and make them a little bit, a bit more professional in terms of the audio because they were pretty rough at the beginning and it was just a bit of a throwaway thing not I just shouldn't say throw away because it's the dharma but I wasn't concerned about the overall presentation that much so that's kind of how it started and then the feedback just kept rolling in a bit like you said at the beginning it was really changing people's practice and people's lives and the meaning was going in so deeply you know that surprised me it really surprised me I want to do something I didn't do at the beginning. I forgot to mention the title of your series, which is Wisdom the Masters, and it's under your name, Samaneri Jayasara, and it's on both podcast and YouTube. And I also want to follow up on what you were saying about the power of the spoken word. We're in a new time in history in which books are so freely available, and we forget that for the last few thousand years, The only way people learned or heard these great texts was hearing them. And as you said, it seems like wisdom goes in in different ways, reading and listening. In many traditions, there are these instructions for, and you implied this, I just want, so I just want to draw out what you were saying, that there are skillful ways of listening. One listens and then reflects on what's being heard. One first sets aside the intellect, just lets it wash through, then reflects on the ideas, then goes into meditation and pinpointedly focuses on them, and even beyond then may stop any activity of mind. And and the Christians call it Lectio Divina, listening, meditatio, reflection, and ending in contemplatio, the presence of God. So, I just want to bring out what you were implying there. Yeah, to me, that's one of the most interesting and fascinating things about this whole process, because in the Buddha's day, there was no writing. So he taught the Dharma in Pali, which is 
which was only a spoken language in those days. So everybody who learnt the Dharma heard it through, you know, a spoken transmission. If you've read the, the Theravada suttas, the Pali suttas, so many people woke up or had an enlightenment experience through listening. And, you know, I often reflect on that, just how powerful it is. And in the Dzogchen tradition, again, with Padmasambhava, given, giving teachings, pointing out instructions, they were always spoken. You know, there were a few, very few people reading as we do now. We've got access to so many texts, reading and, and trying to understand that way. And I think it's an incredibly different process. I think it goes into the heart in a way that when it goes through the mind and the intellect, there's so much evaluation and, you know, I've been trained, we've been trained to critically analyse, to evaluate, to compare and contrast and weigh things up. And there's so much of the ego and me in there and all that conditioning that gets mixed in with, you know, what's really pure dharma. So when you listen, I think you have a better opportunity to empty out. Not always. For some people, their, their intellect is still going for it. But when you learn how to listen to the dharma in the correct way, it, it is a very different process. And the other thing I was funnily enough reflecting on and talking with the other sister here the other day was that during the Buddha's time, it seems so many people, obviously, if you if you get taught directly by the Buddha, you've got a good chance of, of awakening. But putting that aside, so many people used to wake up after a sermon or a sutta by the Buddha, you know, they'd talk at the end and he he or she attains a particular stream, a level of enlightenment or whatnot. And so I was often left with this impression that, oh, the people around during the Buddha's day must have been something else, you know, really special and really ripe. And we, we don't quite have the same capacity in this modern world for people waking up. But then I realised that the, the big difference perhaps wasn't their virtue or certainly their intelligence or obviously something about their merit was special to be born in the time of and to be around a Buddha. But putting all that aside, they didn't have the same intellectual blockages and veils that we do. Most of them weren't highly educated or full of books and knowledge. So when the Buddha taught something as uh, clear and profound as, as the Dharma and the way that he chose to, to to that particular person, it went straight in and there, there weren't those filters, those blocks that I think we have. We have so much knowledge and so much conceptual frameworks and labels and what, and it's just like, whoa, how does it go into the heart? So it just go, it went straight to the heart and the intellect didn't become a blockage. That's the main difference in so many ways. We're just too smart. We're just too educated. And it's so hard to get past all our knowledge to get to the simplicity and the purity of the Dharma, you know. Yeah, I remember I had an interview with an Indian uh, meditation teacher and he said, mm, oh, yes, you are academic. Have you read these, this text, um, these texts? Yes. Do you have a good, good intellectual knowledge of the Dharma? Yeah, well, fairly good. Oh, such a pity. <laughs> exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So the unlearning is what we all need to do. But the interesting thing is Padmasambhava predicted that a lot of these particular termas that are being revealed and a lot of which I am reading, would be more suitable for our times because we're so intellectual. I'm not sure why he chose those particular ones, but he knew what he was talking about, I think. They're simple and they cut through, but they also appeal to a very rational, well-educated mind. So, 
Yeah, it's really interesting, that whole process of listening versus reading. And How's your experience? You're not just reading and you're not just listening. You're actually speaking the text also. So yeah. how is that for you? Speaking it or reading it or... Reading, yeah, yeah coming through you. Again, it's it's a bit like when I read, I don't prepare. And again, it's my tradition in Theravadan. If when the monks and nuns and the Ajahn Chah lineage are always encouraged to speak spontaneously. If anyone prepared a Dharma talk, like I remember Ajahn Samedo would say he, his first Dharma talk he was asked to give as a young monk. And he did notes and, you know, like preparing a lecture or something. And afterward, Ajahn Chah just chastised him and said that was rubbish don't ever do that again you've got to speak from the heart because that's the authenticity you're not manipulating you're not polishing things and so the dharma has a chance to be more immediate and more alive and more authentic i think so when i read i never read it first and say oh okay i'm going to read it like this i'm going to speak it like this so just you know, you get in the zone, don't you? You just let it flow. And if I make a mispronunciation, of course, I, I re-record that. But I try not to make it contrived. I mean, I, I need to pronounce the words as clearly as I can as a, an Australian native because there's a few, few things I say that people won't understand. But apart from just having a clear diction and pronouncing the words correctly, I just don't think about it. So again, it's like the Dharma has to flow. And, and that obviously that comes through somehow, I suppose, you know. It does. It, it definitely does. And it's not yeah. polished, you know, it's not, not that polished or anything. Like that. Well, you, you're, do, you're giving a transmission. Yeah, well, that's the other thing, isn't it? Yeah, there's a transmission happening. And it's such a, a multifaceted one. Mm. You're such a rare person <laughs> and a rare Theravada yeah. renunciate in having exposed yourself very deeply to effectively the world's most profound teachings from yeah. multiple traditions. What drew you to this breadth? It's very rare. Well, again, that's my training because I, I studied comparative religion and spirituality, so I'm not that rare, but I'm a rare Theravadan. <laughs> well, well, you're rare, but there's a big difference between studying comparative religion, which is an intellectual enterprise, yeah, yeah, yeah far removed from spiritual transmission, unfortunately, most times. Mm. But you actually immersed yourself in these texts for your own spiritual opening, I assume. How, did, how were you drawn to these different, this range? I think they were drawn to me. You know, people make requests, things land in my lap. I just kind of open. And I'm not, you know, I do have postgraduate qualifications, but I'm so far from an intellectual. I'm really not that smart intellectually I could do my PhD in that but I was never really into it so but you know I've got some knowledge that I've collected most of it I've forgotten but I've always had an interest and in, I mean I was a fundamentalist Theravadan don't don't worry about that <laughs> so you know I've had to get over that and keep my mind and my heart open and realize that Every person in every tradition for a time I think thinks well I'm we've got the only truth you know and they're so arrogant and it's so close-minded. So fortunately, I've kind of got out of that. I mean, I'm still very much committed to the Theravadan tradition and I love the form, but um, I'm not of the belief it's the, the one and only path or the, the best or anything or the highest. Could, could you summarize what that is for you? Because there may be listeners who are not familiar with that form of, of Theravada. ancient. Oh, well, yeah. I guess in terms of Buddhism, it's it's known as the teaching of the elders. So it relies on the Pali suttas, which are said to be the closest 
resources we have, the closest texts we have to what the Buddha actually spoke or taught. And Theravadan Buddhism spread from India, as we know, and went to main countries were Sri Lanka, Thailand, Burma, Laos. Well, into India at the time. Too. Well, when it left India, it spread, yeah. Mm. So the tradition I'm in is mainly the Thai forest tradition. And then, of course, within Theravada, there's other, other countries where it's spread as well in, in a slightly different form. Does that answer your question, John, in terms of what? Yeah, it got me, it got me interested for more, but then again, I, I, I pretend to be an intellectual, so you just take it as deep oh, or yeah, as far as... we can all pretend. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so Theravadan's the school of the elders and the Pali suttas, and it's mainly concentrated in those particular countries that I mentioned. And your forest version? You said the forest Thai tradition, forest. yeah, that's a whole other story. So in Thailand, you know, there's a lot of rites and rituals and people not really practicing meditation. So the forest tradition broke away from that and wanted to get back to the core of the practice. So monks like Ajahn Man went into the forest and did the more ascetic practices and took up meditation and were quite critical of the scholars too. You know, the, sco- the scholar monks said, we've got to bring the practice back. So in the, the forest tradition is traditionally very much focused on practicing meditation not just reading it and studying, you know, putting the books down. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's why I've never become a renunciate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I wonder if this would be a time to listen to one of your readings. Uh, and perhaps uh, I think I think we have a selection from St. John of the Cross, which is one of your most recent recordings. I think you just came out with it last week. So maybe that'll be beautiful to hear. Yeah. of life, God will not judge us on our earthly possessions and human success, but rather on how much we have loved. Never give up prayer, and should you find dryness and difficulty, persevere in it for this very reason. God often desires to see what love your soul has. And love is not tried by ease and satisfaction. In the dark night of the soul, bright flows the river of God. stillness where meditation leads, 
The Spirit secretly anoints the soul and heals our deepest wounds. Contemplation is nothing else but a secret, peaceful and loving infusion of God, which, if admitted, will set the soul on fire with a spirit of love. Seek in reading, and you will find in meditation. Knock in prayer, and it will be opened to you in contemplation. Silence is God's first language. However softly we speak, God is so close to us that we can be heard. Nor do we need wings to go in search of God, but merely to seek solitude and contemplate God within ourselves. without being surprised to find such a good guest there. So beautiful. It's an exquisite combination of a deep, heartfelt reading set to evocative music. It's such a powerful combination. Yes, exquisite words of St. John the Cross. They just give rise to that quite naturally too. Yeah. Yeah, As the Quakers would say, it spoke to my condition. Thank you. I was not prepared for that. Thank you. You mentioned that in preparing for these, you don't do any kind of formal preparation, but I assume that there's an intention or aspiration that goes with reading. Can you share something about that? Yeah, I I don't overthink these things, but it's more of a like a heartfelt sharing of the Dharma. And again, this is the good conditioning. I've been conditioned since my early 20s to receive the Dharma freely from wonderful teachers in person and obviously, you know, in text and to attend retreats where it's not a commercial enterprise, you're not charged money. And so it's just always been a free exchange of Dharma and realizing through your own practice and transformations, how priceless the Dharma is. And the Buddha spoke about the greatest gift that you can give is the gift of the Dharma. So it exceeds all other gifts. And it's not that I set out thinking, great, I'm going to give the highest gift, but it just, it gives itself, you know, and I've, I've received so much over the years and maybe it's just my time to share. That's all. That's how I see it, you know. And if it's helping people, that's that's the motivation. more than I guess, I don't know if you read some of the comments on YouTube, but there's some really lovely, heartfelt, 
sharings of people, what they've been through, like the dark night of the soul, as St. John talked about, and how these have helped these um, pointers, these teachings have helped them through some really difficult periods and people, you know, having all sorts of insights through them. So that's enough, isn't it? You know, that that's enough to inspire you to keep going. And I didn't think I'd be making such a huge library, but I'm quite prolific. But as I said, I, I don't do anything. <laughs> I don't have any other commitments, any children, you know. <laughs> This is my work. This is my service. And it's a joy for me to do it. And I get so much out of it too. You know, I listen to myself reading it for obviously for quality control, but also for my own practice. So it's a win-win. Yeah. Indeed. <laughs> yes, that's a, as some traditions would say, to give is to receive. So I'm sure that this uh, your giving is, is also receiving. What drew you to the contemplative life? Mm, I think suffering initially, a kind of awakening to suffering. You know, I guess that's why the Buddha did focus on the Four Noble Truths as the kind of the primary teaching is there was an awareness in me, not so much at a, when I was a child, because as a child, I was a young child, I was really kind of happy and connected with nature and just being. There was a natural joy in me as a child. I mean, there was moments of suffering within the family dynamics, but they weren't intense and they passed over quickly. But I think once I hit my teenage years, leaving school and just feeling that I hadn't really got that much in terms of understanding the profundity of life. I, I was raised a Catholic and went to Catholic schools all my life. So, you know, I had a, some good teachings in terms of kindness and morality the mystery of Jesus's teachings, but I don't think I really got it at a, at a profound level. I think it was once I hit my late teens, early 20s, I just thought, uh, experienced suffering within myself in terms of just that existential crisis of what are we doing? You know, there's so much emphasis on accumulating money and wealth and just getting married and doing what everybody else does, renovating the house and and it just hit me when I was 21. I thought on my 21st birthday in particular, I just thought, God, we're all going to die. What are we doing? You know, no one's talking about death. So I was contemplating death a lot through some acid trips, LSD trips. It kind of brought that to the fore to me too and had some bad acid trips. And I was obviously searching through some fairly unskillful means to answers to questions. And yeah, so then I was fortunate, I suppose, as a life-saving tool too, I came across the Buddha's teachings and Krishnamurti's teachings I think I was in my second or third year of an undergraduate course in politics, which wasn't speaking to me at all. So I just started reading Krishnamurti. I think I read every single book in the Latrobe Uni library of his. And as I finally, someone's speaking the truth, you know, and in a really clear cutting way, cutting edge way of cutting through all the nonsense and the delusion and equally reading the Buddhas. So, but I came, I think I came through it through suffering, really, just dissatisfaction with what the world was offering and my own internal processes of confusion and delusion and greed, hatred and delusion. Finally had some answers, clear answers to look at and to take responsibility too that, you know, I could only do this by going within. I, I wasn't going to change the world. You know, the world will be what it'll be. And if I wanted to come out of suffering, I had to go within rather than stay. Uh, biting the world without. So that, that's how it came about. And you were exposed to, at that stage, Buddhist practices? Was that a turning point? 
Yeah, well, I had a, a massive library at La Trobe, so I, that's where I found Krishnamurti and Buddhist texts. Somehow I wasn't in the, in the politics rows. I, was, I ended up in the philosophy rows and was choosing books from that. But then I, practically I also undertook 10-day Vipassana retreats when I was 21. I think I was 21. That changed my life. And they're so powerful, you know, they're probably a bit too powerful in many respects for people. But practically that 10 days of intensive retreats of 11 hours on the cushion per day for 10 days, just, well, it can't help have a huge transformation on your life. So I, I didn't stop meditating after that, really. That was the practical. And I was trying to integrate the intellectual, the, the conceptual understanding with the practice of meditation. And that's why I went on to study comparative religion and Buddhism not because I wanted to be an academic, and I never was, but it gave me an excuse not to get a full-time <laughs> job. <laughs> I could stay as a student and do as many retreats as I wanted and because the emphasis in Vipassana, and, and, and still is, I think, was like do retreat after retreat after retreat. So I became a bit of a retreat junkie. After Vipassana, I moved more into a Buddhist practice because Vipassana even though it teaches Anapanasati and some of the insight practices, it doesn't declare itself as a Buddhist organisation. It tries to just stay rather secular. So I had to kind of put all these pieces of the puzzle together, you know, to realise, oh, they're actually teaching Buddhism, but they don't want to call it Buddhism. I wasn't ashamed to, to, to adopt the Buddhist practice, so I, I linked more then after a few years with the monastics within, within Buddhism. Yeah. So you're describing your own unique path and, and life openings, yet in many ways they are probably reminiscent of commonalities to many people's paths, you know, a period of disorientation, of awakening to the pain and suffering that each of us faces simply by being born into a body which ages, sickens and dies, but also the collective suffering, the enormity of pain in the world, so much of it absolutely unnecessary. And so you had that confrontation. Fortunately, you had available to you some, something which 50 years ago just was wasn't an option in Western culture, which is amazing to think about. We, we tend to think, or at least I'm in San Francisco, practically every one of the world's <laughs> contemplative practices is available in every spiritual tradition. Yet we tend to forget how rare that is. And a friend and I were reflecting on, okay, well, when was the last time there was a place in the world like San Francisco and the best we could come up with was Alexandria 2,000 years ago, which was a meeting place of the world's traditions. But we forget how extraordinarily privileged we are to have the world's contemplative practices and teachings available to us for the first time in millennia. And to be able to choose, to be able to walk to a library or to a bookstore and pick up a text from Ramana Amhashi or any one of the great traditions. And to also have teachers who can expose us to these practices. So this is just a rare gift. And, and you made use of that. You dove into one one particular tradition and sounds like that's been your portal, your doorway into, uh, into the spiritual practice, very intense spiritual practice. Yeah, it's interesting what you say about how much we're spoilt for choice, aren't we? But I don't think people realise just how fortunate we are 
I guess the danger with spirituality, and we're seeing it's happened, it's become spiritual materialism. So people are trying to make a buck out of it or become a you know new age guru. And there's a lot of stuff that's being uh, defiled about it. But that I guess that's just part of the human nature too. But yeah, just to, to have access to such real authentic teachings and so much is, is kind of incredible. You said it well. There's a saying, whatever can be misused will be misused. And <laughs> Human um, nature. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I really want to emphasize that one of the gifts of your readings is that they are offered with completely free of charge, complete without any expectation of return. They, say, they are your gift to the world and an exquisitely beautiful one at that. Uh, I, I just love the spirit with which you're offering these. Yeah, good, great. Yeah, and, and if any any small way we can, uh, what we're doing here right now, will help more people be able to, to experience the medicine that I experienced at one time and I was just, uh, I was floored. It was very powerful. You're not listening on um, YouTube yet, John. No, I no, this is I just came with you know beginner's mind. Let's see what's gonna happen. And it's good on you, beginner's mind. As soon as you started talking, when I'm such a rookie, where's my you know, where's my Kleenexes around here? I'm gonna completely lose oh, it. Sweet, so sweet. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. I didn't realize that. I thought you'd been listening to the to the recordings for a oh, while. Oh no, I, I was just <laughs> oh, you got a bit of catching up to do. There's about four hundred. So excited. <laughs> it's such a great deal. Thank you. <laughs> Well, I, I've listened enough for both of us, so John, you can, <laughs> you can get a free ride on this one, but I, I suspect you'll be listening to a lot from now on, as many of my friends have. I've certainly, I've certainly been advocating, and I do want to, I do want to mention, John, you you uh, raised the point of wanting to support JSR and the work she's doing, and one can, as I am, become a patron and support this work, or simply offer donations to to support the the Hermitage, which. JSR resides in and uh, support the practice of the nuns. So there are ways in which we can support you. And and the way we want to support you right now is by, in this conversation, is getting this out, getting the word out to as many people as we can. Yeah, great. Uh, yeah, good. There was something I was going to say in, in response to all the different traditions too. It's just sometimes listening to, say, St. John of the Cross or another tradition that you might be a little bit familiar with or not familiar with at all, to hear the teaching expressed in another way, a different conceptual framework, and you sort of, it can be really fresh in your practice too. Because, you know, when you listen to that excerpt of St. John, I could write that in Buddhist languages, you know, uh, or Advaita language. It's just a different way of expressing it, but it, they're all pointing to the same ultimate truth. And I really love the Christian way of expressing it and the humility, I think, that comes through in a lot of the saints. And even though it sort of sounds a little bit Julian with yourself and God, the, the ones that really went deep, like St. John of the Cross, they transcended that duality. And, you know, the realisation was that divinity was within and that, and that truth is within. It's not something separate from you. So for me, I think that's why I like to widen my uh, scope and open my mind to all the traditions because it, it enlivens your practice, I think. Because you can get stuck in ruts, can't you? And condition ways of thinking or conceptualizing truth, these other traditions can really help freshen it up. Indeed. Yeah, I'm somewhat familiar with St. John of the Cross. My journey started out in a Christian groove, but moved on from there. But I've never been touched by him like happened here. I keep going back to that, but that was really extraordinary for me. You saw it live here, folks. <laughs> John just had an awakening. <laughs> <laughs> There's hope for us all. <laughs> 
Amen. Live on Zoom. <laughs> Amen. JSR, I want to bring out something that you mentioned in passing, and that is the way in which exposure to different traditions can enrich our practice. And I remember Ramdas, who was one of my teachers years ago and really a very important mentor for me. He said that there is a flow and rhythm to spiritual life. And when you first begin, it's great. Maybe you want to take a smorgasbord approach and just as we can for the first time in millennia, we can expose ourselves to different traditions and teachers and depths. And so great. We'll dine at the smorgasbord, but then at a certain point, it may be appropriate and you may feel called to dive deeper into one tradition to really give yourself, offer yourself to an immersion in a particular kind of practice or tradition. And do that for as long as you feel called. And then at a certain time, you may notice exactly what you said, Jaisara. Then there's a, maybe it's getting a little stale in some way. And then again, you may be drawn to a fresh perspective, an alternate way of seeing things, a different vocabulary, a different depth. That can be a delightful enrichment of practice. And perhaps you'll go back to where the tradition you were in originally or perhaps you'll find another one that pulls you for at this stage of your life and each of us has our own unique path but he emphasized so beautifully uh, to follow one's heart and inner guidance as to mm. what felt most appropriate at each stage of spiritual life with emphasized we you know, we all have reservoirs of wisdom within us that we don't usually recognize or access but when we do we have a guy in a in a radar and that radar mm. guides us to as it did you to different teachers and and texts and uh, enriches us in so many ways yeah beautiful i mean ram dust had just such a exceptionally beautiful way of expressing dhamma didn't he he's he was exquisite yeah. Oh, he did. He was a major influence on me. I had the good fortune of uh, yeah. uh, actually the first retreat I ever went to was with him. I was very fortunate. He was very poetic in his expression of Dharma. I love that. There's a few things floating on YouTube, recent recordings of him, not me, but other channels that have um, put him to music, and it's just beautiful. He's lovely. So I, I have a question for you. How do you how do you select your texts? How do they come to you? I don't. They just come. <laughs> I got a really long list from people requesting and I can never make promises. It just, it depends what presents itself. Yeah. Sometimes I have dreams that of, of, of a spiritual teacher and that, that will prompt me or someone will mention it and I'll think, oh, I must get around to recording another Anandamaima or something, but it's, I don't have any plans. It just, whatever feels right. Yeah, it's pretty kind of loose, loose going, a bit like this interview, you know, wherever it goes, we just go with it. <laughs> but clearly the texts you read are ones that speak to you in some way because you're able to, uh, it feels like open to resonate with and transmit their depths. Yeah, they, they, what's interesting about that, Roger, is that at one level, of course, I have to resonate with it. But sometimes, you know, I've read something and I think that didn't resonate. I get it. And then I go back and listen. And I'm like, oh, my God, that's amazing. You know, it goes because I might be initially unfamiliar with the languaging. Or, or the structure, and it's that's happened a few times. So I'm never, I'm never, you know, absolutely convinced by my first impression. If I, if I think, well, that that, that wasn't 
so good, not so much how I read it, but whether it resonated for me. And then, uh, you know, just keep the mind open because sometimes there's been a few that have really blown me away. So having said that, I've had a few requests for some spiritual teachers and, you know, I might check them out because I'm interested, I haven't heard of them. And then either the teaching hasn't resonated or I've done some research and they made a few dubious comments and I just I'm not going there, you know. I've got to, I've got to use my discernment. I'm not just open to anyone and everything. I try and really, not that I can validate all these masters as 100% awakened and pure, but just be a little bit discerning because there's a lot of there's a lot of dodgy stuff out there too. So I tend to stick with the ones who are dead. That's safe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, they don't get, get into more trouble. Sorry, <laughs> well, I was going to say, I once said I prefer my spiritual teachers dead. Much safer. Um, just for that reason. Yeah. yeah, it's much safer. I don't want to go promoting anyone and then find out 10 years down the track they've had a huge list of sexual allegations or something like that against them, which, you know, happens in the spiritual tradition. So... Yeah, no, just uh, yeah, and you can you can sort of feel too yeah. that if someone's really authentic, and a lot of these are translations too. So you you know you've got all those things to to take into to account. But there's a certain power I think that comes through when you're really in in the vicinity of an authentic spiritual master, and their words are there, and and you feel it, and you think no, they they were they were the real deal, you know. Yeah, and it, and it, you seem to have found and read from some of the teachers who really are speaking from enormous depth. I don't know how much we want to get into this, but I think one of the things that's getting clear to us is we now have a better understanding of, of spiritual practice, of psychological maturity, of psychological health, of spiritual well-being, of the stages of adult development, that different texts and teachings and traditions even speak from different perspectives, different depths of of opening and awakening and even different psychological levels. And we're just beginning to map that out, uh, but you seem to have gravitated towards teachers of extraordinary profundity who are transmitting really some of the great depth with enormous clarity and, and in many cases, clear compassion. Yeah, I think clarity and compassion and also if they're the real deal, there's a certain, I don't want to say, sim- well, yeah, there's a certain simplicity. It's it's uncluttered, you know, and you really feel that. So by the end of if it's just an excerpt or, you know, a whole complete teaching, you kind of get to the end of it and your mind feels in the same way, uncluttered and clear and it, it, it doesn't, you know, Dharma truth is not complicated. We make it complicated and complex, but it's not. And so these teachers, because their insights are, you know, were authentic and real, that purity gets communicated. So, you know, you should feel at the end of it, having read it, or I should, that hey, I feel as clear and, you know, calm and compassionate and as uncluttered as what's being conveyed here in this message. And you're talking about transmission, which is something that each tradition uh, acknowledges as a possibility that in the in the presence of someone who is awake or yeah. mature who has a 
clear mind, a pure heart, that those qualities of heart and mind can elicit the same or at least similar states mm. and openings uh, as they themselves are speaking from. And of course, from neuroscience, interpersonal psychology, we now know that we're like tuning forks. We resonate to one another's state of mind. And yeah. as the saying goes, be careful who you hang out with because you'll become like them and even look like them. But here we have this made use of in the best possible way in these traditions that these people who have spent, in some cases, decades cultivating the deepest openings of mind and spirit, the greatest purity of heart and the purest of intentions do transmit to the extent we're open to it, those same qualities So, in as much as we can resonate with and open to at least a certain extent to those same states and stages. It's amazing, isn't it? Especially when you do consider how ancient some of these teachings are and that they've been through a few, quite a few hands and a few different translators. But the power is obviously still there coming through, through all those different cultural contexts and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah, I find that really amazing. But also your voice. We talked about that earlier. But, yeah, there's a, there's a definite transmission. And in the Christian tradition, we say you're anointed for this. You know, you have a gift for this. And you could have a professional actor, you know, just professionally trained and, you know, sound great and not pull off what you were able to pull off. I mean, I have a very little small sample of your work. I, I was touched very deeply. So that's that's something. Yeah, but it's not me. That's the thing. And that's what I my practice has to always come back to, because if people writing all sorts of things on YouTube about me. I'd certainly open to their gratitude and their appreciation. I love that. But I have to be really careful. It's not about me and it's not something special about my voice or my personality or anything. It's just uh, if that comes into it, then the whole thing's going to be sullied. And so it's constantly remembering that this is just, I'm just a channel for this. If it's helpful, that's great, but it's, it's got nothing to do with me. Well, and that's why it works. <laughs> You know, that's, yeah, that's, that's yeah. you got the secret right there. You know, that, that's it. Yeah. Well, maybe it's time to give John a, a second awakening and play, play another reading. <laughs> Okay. I, got my, I, have my, I have my Kleenex. I'm ready. No, no, no. Now you're going to go in with expectations, you see. This is the problem with spiritual practice, isn't it? Now you're going in, oh, I had that experience. I want it again. Yeah, I want it better this time. Give me more. Give me more, 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 more. <laughs> it puts a blockage to us, to, to it, isn't it? I'm not talking about you in particular, but it's just it's a good teaching for Ah, oh, that was wonderful. I want that again. And now I'm expecting, and then that, they're those, those things that always block it, isn't it? Our expectations, our, our memories, our perceptions, our conditioning. So for you to have that experience was, yeah, you were complete beginner's mind. You had not, you didn't have any preconceptions about what you were going to listen to or what was going to happen. And wow, great. Don't expect it again, though, John. I won't. I promise. <laughs> Uh, let's listen. I think this next one is from Tuang Su, the great Taoist sage.
If you persist in trying to attain what is never attained, if you persist in making efforts to obtain what effort cannot get, If you persist in reasoning about what cannot be understood, you will be destroyed by the very thing you seek. To know when to stop. To know when you can get no further by your own action. This is the right beginning. You can never find happiness until you stop looking for it. My greatest happiness consists precisely in doing nothing whatever that is calculated to obtain happiness. And this, in the minds of most people, is the worst possible course. If you ask what ought to be done and what ought not to be done in order to produce happiness, I answer that these questions do not have an answer. There is no way of determining such things. Yet, at the same time, if I cease striving for happiness, the right and the wrong at once become apparent all by themselves. Contentment and well-being at once become possible the moment you cease to act with them in view. And if you practice non-doing, wu-wei, you will have both happiness and well-being. Beautiful, beautiful. Ah, oh. that was a uh, long Go ahead, Roger.
No, go ahead, John. I was going to say that helped me in another area of my life very much, and that's my tennis game. Thank you. I needed that. <laughs> I've seriously been hitting a wall with this. And uh, that really spoke to that. And it has been, it is a path for me that I have passion for. And so I work hard at it and I've been playing horribly, trying so trying hard. Too hard. Yeah. Trying too hard. It's exactly what I needed to hear. And just give me the joy back of, of, the thing in itself. Yeah, there's something that's so profound about that level of teaching. It seems like there's a, a certain stage on contemplative path, there's a 180 degree. At first, you start off working and practicing and striving and cultivating particular qualities and trying to hone the mind and point it in the right direction and get it to do what you want. And, and then it is, and cultivate qualities of very wonderful qualities of heart and mind. And then at a certain stage, there's this recognition that all these qualities are actually latent within us and that it's more about allowing them to emerge and flourish. The Taoists speak so beautifully mm-hmm. to that. Perhaps they have not the corner on the market of that, but perhaps it's one of their great, greatest emphases. And I think it's also with any of the masters I choose anyway, I think it's just a reflection of the great masters. They all kind of get to the, you know, they're trying to save us a lot of trouble and, and dukkha, stress, you know, by saying, hey, it's, it's right here and now. You just have to recognise it. And you don't have to go shopping or twisting yourself in knots or getting lost in all these rites and rituals. It's just uh, wake up to it now. And their, their language and their pointers were so clear and so compassionate. And, and that's why I think, you know, I tend to gravitate towards those masters who say that. Because I think any great master will save you a lot of time. <laughs> you know, you don't have to subscribe to my particular methodology or do this or do that. And I guess there's a, as you say, there's perhaps a, a time, a, a stage in the path for preliminary practices are helpful for beginners to perhaps purify the mind and stabilize the mind. But if one is able to just open to it in the here and now and recognize it and then practice from that state of simplicity, that's, you know, I wouldn't have mind heard it, hearing it when I first started out, but perhaps I wouldn't have got it either, you know? Well, I certainly wouldn't. Yeah, and exactly. I, uh, <laughs> yeah. And I had a, have had a very striving personality and by a strange coincidence brought that into my practice and to the point that I literally, in a, in a long three-month retreat, literally burnt out very badly. Mm. And as it turned out, there was an inher- a latent wisdom within that because given how committed I was to striving and achievement, it took coming to a point where I literally could no longer do that before it, it dropped away. And then I could recognize, oh, there's a possibility of being resting as opposed yeah. to becoming and yeah. resting yeah. as opposed to struggling etc yeah. etc et yeah. but i'm sure i was exposed to those ideas many times but they certainly didn't connect with me yeah it's interesting isn't it i guess we just have to go on our own path and tie ourselves up in knots till we kind of as you say burn yourself out or just let go and surrender yeah and hopefully you know with teachings like this we can make that transition more quickly or at least have somewhat easier time, save ourselves some time. Mm. But there is a deeper question here, JSR, and that in Zen, it would be referred to as the, the debate between the sudden enlightenment and gradual enlightenment schools. And if we, one hears so many stories, particularly in Zen, you know, so-and-so was sweeping the monastery floor on a tile 
broken, you know, he awakened. Well, good luck. I've swept a lot of floors. <laughs> Nothing's happened. So there is, you know, there is this delicate question of do we have to, as you implied, go through a significant amount of practice before we can let go that the striving and even the necessity for honing and training and refining the heart and mind. Yeah, but I, I think people make the assumption that we're just, this is our first life of practice, you know. And it's like how many lifetimes have we been practicing and deepening our spiritual understanding and burning ourselves out and following the wrong path and so on? And uh, unless you have direct insight into that, we don't know, but with Ramana Maharshi because, you know, he awakened at 16 and then left the world and went into deep samadhi and perhaps went a little bit off the path himself, you know, just letting his body go to rot nearly and people had to keep him alive, but he'd let go so completely. But he'd say to people, you know, this has been accumulating for many lifetimes. His sudden awakening happened not because at 14 he started practising or whatever, but because he was bringing in those lifetimes of practice. So he's, he was ripe. So we don't know. We don't know when the fruit's going to fall from the tree. And even though that Zen story of sweeping the monastery with the sudden enlightenment, it's not so sudden if you could see back lifetimes ago, you know. Yeah, well, even within this lifetime, what those those texts forget to mention is the monk had been there for 20 years. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> swept, swept the floor a lot of times exactly. before that happened. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> you mentioned lifetimes, and mm. that, of course, brings up the topic of death. And you have a number of readings on the topic of death, preparing for it. Would you say something about those readings or your understanding of those topics? On death? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a very powerful practice that all the great masters would encourage people to, to undertake consciously To because, you know, especially in Western culture, we try and forget about it and push it aside as much as possible. So the death contemplations, well, for me, as I said, when I was in my 20s, teenage years, I was obsessed with death. Didn't quite know why, but uh, obsessed with it in the sense I wasn't suicidal or anything like that, but just, wow, we're going to die, you know, and what happens when you die and why? how come we're living these lives and no one's talking about death? And I remember with my friends when I was 19 wanting to talk about death and they just said, oh, you're so morbid, you know, and no one wanted to talk about it, but I just wanted to contemplate it. And I think if, if someone, you know, if you obviously if you lose someone close to you, you've got no choice but to, to feel into that yeah. and to contemplate it. But in, in terms of the spiritual practice, it, it is something that can really shift the delusion around the identification with the body because the, there's so much fear around death because we're so sure we feel that we are these bodies and it's these bodies, when these bodies die, it means I'm going to die and I'm going to lose everything. And so contemplating death is a way of waking up, isn't it? Of, you know, we are not these bodies. And what are these bodies? And using those brilliant spiritual contemplations that the Buddha left us and many of the great masters to really to look at each aspect of the body and, and our relationship to death. And many people wake up through through that death contemplations. You know, it doesn't it doesn't have to be morbid, but People have to look at their fear and and go beyond it. And I've had a number of requests on YouTube to create that playlist. So I, I do have a playlist now 
where I put all the teachings that specifically address death. Nice. Um, Thank so you. People can find them easy. You know, I, I, I was going to say just a little bit about death, and I've got a, the three of us here. I met, I knew I knew of Roger, okay, and I'd read his books and when I was a student of transpersonal psychology and then the integral world. He was always there. Two, I guess it was about three years ago, we were at a conference in Hungary, and I had just lost my parents and had a massive heart attack like a couple of months before. And so I was really close to it. And Roger had just lost his wife, Frances, of many, many years. And so we just we just started talking. And somehow that opened, you know, we just felt like, I don't know what we felt, but it was really, it was really holy and good. I think somewhere after that, I said, you know, well, maybe we can do a podcast because I've done some of this stuff before. And I thought, if I could get Roger talking in front of a, a video on, on a podcast, that would be a great service to the world. Uh, yeah, so it just kind of started that way, having a chance to birth something, but I think it was in the recognition of death and my almost death and, and the death of people that I deeply love and still miss that started this thing. And it became clear to me that the other motivation, uh, well, it's probably the original one, is that I want to hang out with people that make me want to be a better person. Roger's dedication to practice and scholarship and all this deeply and humility deeply inspires me. And the people that we've been speaking to also have gifts to give. They have medicine for, you know, our hurting human family. The same thing with you, Jaisar. I'm a musician also, among other things, and I'm a CEO of iAwake Technologies, and we create meditation tools and use brain entrainment and guided meditation and stuff. So I can, from a professional thing, I can also appreciate what you're doing and the depths of of the timing is so perfect. And it's unstriven far, I'm sure, but it's just there. So yeah, death got this party together in, in a very profound way. It's just a gift that keeps giving, I guess. And certainly within the spiritual practice, uh, there is a need to die before you die, as they say. You know, we have to die to this belief that um, we are these mortal forms or these personalities. And so th- th- contemplating the, the physical body as, a, as something that is going to, well, not so much die, but go back to its uh, elements is an opportunity to really die to our beliefs and our views and delusions. And the death contemplation has such breadth and depth to it, you know. It's not just about looking at a physical body dying. It's the whole ego thing has to come into the fore. And I think most people who have powerful spiritual awakenings, often it's related to an ego death. And that's that's what uh, propels someone so powerfully on this path if they, if they have a, an ego death experience and get through it okay. There needs to be support through that. And yet the contemplations of death are really challenging. They're some of the most challenging of all. And, and it seems like different people open or accept death more easily than others. For myself, I no, despite having done decades of practice, I'm not complete with it. I still have anxiety, uh, incompleteness around my own death. And so it, it can be very challenging. Yeah, that's that's why it's powerful, because there's an assumption that you're going to die. <laughs> and, you know, and who are you? You, you know, and that's why you know, Ramana was always pointing people. Well, who, who do you think's going to die? Does, are you the body? Are you these thoughts, these personalities, these proclivities? 
And that was his own awakening, wasn't it? He laid, you know, the story of Ramana at 16, lying on the ground in his home in India, consciously imagining himself dying. And it was so powerful. It actually he had the physical experience of the body actually dying for a time there. So he like he had a, a near-death experience, if you like, but it wasn't in an accident or an illness. It was purely through his conscious intention to contemplate death. And then because he bravely and courageously faced his own death and with an inquisitive mind, but with a powerful refuge in awareness, he saw the body dying. He saw the elements dissolving or experienced it. He saw the mind and the thoughts kind of doing what they do, which at the moment of death, they will break down and no one will have a sense of their personality anymore. But his awareness was so powerful that he was the observer through all of that and realized that nothing actually dies. The pure awareness is the deathless realm. And so he took refuge in that. And that's why he was willing to drop his body there and then and left home and went and got eaten by rats in the cave because <laughs> he didn't care about the body anymore. He was in either samadhi or just transcended the physical realm and realized the, the deathless and that's why he was fearless because it was like he wasn't he wasn't attached anymore as an identity to to a body mind you know that's why his teachings are so pure and beautiful because he was he he was the reality or he called it the self didn't he yeah. And perhaps it's appropriate to just mention that death is also simultaneously a rebirth to a different identity. That's one way of looking at, at the goal of practice is to shift from an identification with the mind and its belief system, which constitutes the separate self-sense or ego, as we, as we call it. But in that dissolution or disidentification, then there's the possibility of recognizing that which is always already present behind or prior to yeah, yeah. the thoughts. Well, as long as it doesn't become a new identity, that's the problem too, is that people then start to pick it up as a thing or a a new identity. I am the self. I am, the, you know, and there's all this subtle duality still going on or there's not a real willingness to die completely to it all if one picks it up as a new identity or a new attainment, you know, and that's why these masters, you know, they've died. They're, they're empty vessels, you know. <laughs> And for most of us, it needs to be a repeated process of a, a death to one belief system, yeah. but then the uh, ego or the mind uh, very skillfully recreates a new, more subtle, more exalted uh, <laughs> look at me. Totally, totally. <laughs> and delusion is so subtle, isn't it? You know, we can the, we can delude, be so deluded in such a subtle way and especially on the spiritual path, people thinking that they're attained and they're fully enlightened and it's obvious they're not, you know. Well, that, that's a trap when anyone says, yeah. <laughs> makes that claim. Yeah, exactly. As our friend uh, Ken Wilbur once said, I know 10 people who think they're the only fully enlightened people on the planet. I just want to get them in a room <laughs> That would be hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> really? So, yeah, there's so many yeah. subtle traps on this. but the And I think, you know, the, the real... Ego death is not something you'd be kind of dancing around ex exclaiming to people as if you've got something, you know. It knocks the complete wind out of you. <laughs> and you mentioned that the inevitability almost, it seems, or at least in my experience, it feels inevitable getting caught in ever more subtle trances that uh, one can think, oh, wow, far out. I've, I've seen that. And <laughs> then yeah, whatever you're seeing from is the next. Yeah. <laughs> is the next seduction. 
Yeah, completely yeah. Keep, keep on clinging to something or memory, you know, it's just, we just don't want to let go. I think when we're giving our gifts and there's a moment of freedom there and ego death, you know, we're not tripping about how wonderful we are, what's coming through or this. We're just the universe giving what this particular part of it was made to give. And that's a, it's a beautiful, holy thing. And then of course we can make our stories and jump all over it afterwards. But when it's in the process and it's just just coming through that's uh yeah that's pretty beautiful and very holy and pretty free yeah. Sarah, what's calling you now you've spent years putting these readings together i know you in a very short time will be going into retreat for a period of time is there uh, is there something new or that's calling what's what's your sense of what's next for you i have no idea roger <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea what the day will bring, what the next day will bring. I, yeah, I do have a plan to go into retreat in a few days' time. Really open to that because I'm going to a local Tibetans uh, centre, which is just reopening after COVID. So I kind of have the whole place to myself and it's at the foothill of a sacred mountain, Aboriginal mountain, mother mountain called Gulaga. The Tibetan centre is kindly allowed me to go and practice in one of their samadhi huts. So I'm going into the great unknown there. And it was a centre where Namkai Norbu, you know, the great uh, Rinpoche, and he uh, he started that centre and he moved on from that. But uh, I'm really kind of feeling very excited about going into the space where Namkai Norbu um, the place he established, as well as the sacredness of the Aboriginal energy around that place. So that's all I have in mind at the moment, just the next period of time that's going to open up for me. And and this mountain that we live near is very, very powerful. So we'll see what happens. And then I you know, come back to our little hermitage and see what life presents then. I plan on continuing if life allows it. You know, if I'm still alive, I've got to contemplate death every day. You know, I keep doing whatever readings present themselves. But that's as far as my plans and ambitions go. <laughs> <laughs> well, that simplifies things. <laughs> uh, it's pretty simple. i got a pretty simple life. Yeah. And it's and it's beautiful. There's uh, there's an idea in so many traditions of the cycle of withdrawal and return yeah. that we go into ourselves to question ourselves and the great issues of life, and and we then we go out into the world to offer what we've found, and we ideally we use our going back into the world as a practice which enables us to go deeper. And it sounds like that's the life you've devoted yourself to. Absolutely, yeah. And I feel having done these recordings, you know, I think I started the first one maybe two years ago now. I, I can hear the difference in my voice too uh, over two years. Um, and certainly the the resonance of the, the the teachings have gone in even more powerfully. And what's interesting, sometimes I let my MP3 play a random play and it might play an old teaching recording I did and I haven't heard for ages. And it's and again it can blow me away and often does. And it's like, wow, I read that probably 18 months ago. That's incredible, that teaching. And it goes in at a, at a new level. And it's like the layers of the onion just keep peeling back. It's amazing. You know, so how, how how many layers of depth 
can it go? Well, it does seem that that's one of the hallmarks of a really profound teaching, that, that each time you listen to it, you're able to recognize or attune to deeper, more deeper layers of meaning and significance. Yeah. And that they, see, they seem bottomless. Yeah, exactly. It's like, that's why, is this ever going to stop? And it just it keeps going. And, you know, and it's different layers, but it's also different angles, isn't it? You sort of, I don't know, you sort of seem to come at it from a different perspective. There are so many layers even within one particular phrase or teaching that you can access. So it just shows you the depth of the Buddha's wisdom. You know, he said he shared he shared with us just a handful of leaves and how much he had that he wasn't going to bother, you know, sharing it with, but it was, that's how immense his knowledge, his understanding of, of Dharma was. This has been so rich and so beautiful. Jessar, is there anything else you'd like to bring up? Or John, do you have other questions? I have one little technical question because I'm so fascinated with the power of what you're producing. Do you listen to the music when you do the readings? Or do you add the music? Uh, not, not anymore. I used to. I had a really dodgy microphone when I first started and I was just finding my way with a new, you know, that free audacity thing that you can download. So I was just getting the hang of it. They used to take me ages to do because I'd listen and play the music and then I'd think I have to have a lot of different music tracks, which I don't do that anymore. So now I just read and then I just listen to it and I think that one doesn't need music. You know, I've got a whole playlist of no music ones. I just go and feel some of them just are better with no music. And I, you know, there's a bit of debate out there. Some people think you should have music, you shouldn't have music, whatever. I just go and feel... It's a bit like the reading. I just, I've got this massive music library now and musicians send me their music too that I can use because in the earlier days I used to use, and I, I was completely green, I used to use copyrighted music on YouTube, which you're allowed to do, but it means they can play ads on your videos and that's not great if it's a meditation, right? And it, 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 <laughs> make, it makes money for the music musos, which is completely fair enough. So now I'm trying not to use copyrighted music. And so a lot of musicians send me their music to use. So I've got a massive, massive music library, which I never listen to because I don't listen to music as a, a Buddhist nun. In this tradition, you're kind of, you're not supposed to anyway. Um, but I wouldn't consider this music a lot of what I have. It's more, you know, it's kind of sacred mantras and sounds. I just let, I don't know, just it comes. I don't have a... A structure. I couldn't explain how it happens. It just a bit presents itself. But obviously, for something like the Chinese teachings, I go to my Zen library and try and give the right context for it. And for Saint John of the Cross, I had a sort of a Christian-sounding soundtrack, so that it's not totally incongruous with the teaching. But it just it presents itself. I don't I don't know what's going to come. But then I'll listen. I'll listen. I think. Yeah, that works. And I give it to the other sister and she goes, no, I don't like that one. Try another one. We just play around. And sometimes I get it in one. Sometimes I struggle. You know, I think, oh, that one's, I'm just going to put that one aside. And I often pray to them. I go, okay, St. John, please send me the music you want. Well, however you do it, it works. <laughs> and it's an exquisite collection. Oh, good, and good. Uh, I want to thank you personally because it's been just an incredible gift for me and my practice and for 
many friends that I've, <laughs> I've sent your links to. But I also want to thank you for the whole spiritual community because you are now reaching an enormous number of people. I think you mentioned you had 50,000 subscribers. It's clearly growing at an enormous rate. You're reaching and touching many, many people and many lives and deepening practice and offering some of the greatest gifts that humankind has brought down or that these great masters have have realized the depths of human possibilities and spoken as best they can their discoveries, their insights, their depths, and you're making them available in another whole way, which is just a priceless gift to us all. I want to acknowledge again, you're on both YouTube and on multiple podcast platforms. The title is under your name, Samaniri Jayasara, and the title of the series is Wisdom of the Masters. And I encourage everyone to jump over to listen and take some time to imbibe the beauty of and wisdom and profundity of these these teachings and this transmission. And it really is a transmission. And I also encourage you to uh, support JSR and her hermitage and con- the creation of these this wonderful reservoir and, and cornucopia for us all. JSR, it has been a a delight to have this conversation with you. Thank you personally and on behalf of us all. What a gift you are and what a gift you're giving us all. You're very welcome, Roger and John. <laughs> thanks thanks for having me on and uh, nice to connect with you. And it, it does seem funny that uh, 35 years ago I was quoting you, Roger. So must I must pull out my old thesis and have a look what you said. <laughs> well, it's not going to touch you the way the read it, your readings do. I can guarantee you. No, no, not you at that. all. I mean, you know, no, nothing is separate, is it? It's all it's all interconnected. It's one thing leads to another. So it's kind of interesting. I I, I benefited enormously from your clarity of writing this whole around this whole area many years ago, and now we're kind of coming around to connect again. So it's lovely. <laughs> it's beautiful. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Nice to connect. Today's episode was brought to you by iAwake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do from John, Roger and the Deep Transformation team.